The words to which I should like to call your attention this morning are to be found in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians in the fourth chapter, verses 20 and 21. Verses 20 and 21 in the fourth chapter of Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. But ye have not so learned Christ, if so be that ye have heard him, and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. We come back back once more to these striking and dramatic words which are here addressed by the apostle to these Ephesians who once had been pagans but who now had become Christian. And we remember that what he is concerned to do here is to apply to them and through them to all Christians at all times everywhere. The obvious implication, not content to state it in general as we've seen, and uh, he divides it up in order to make quite sure that they really have got it and have grasped it. Now, the fundamental way of putting it is, it's learning that comes first, you see. Christianity is not just a vague emotional experience. Thank God it does include our emotions. But if we've only got an emotional experience, we haven't got Christianity. That we know that we are here and are concerned about these things and are interested in them and look forward to coming together to worship thee and to sing thy praise and to consider thy word because thou hast are not really living to the praise of the glory of God's grace. Well, now then, says the Apostle, you have not so learned Christ. But he then, in verse 21, breaks this up into its uh, component parts. He says, if so be, that's to say, assuming, assuming that you have heard him and have been taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. What he means is this, that the whole of this truth preaches holiness, preaches this Christian living over and against that pagan and that sinful living which is still the characteristic of the life of the world. He says everything about it. If you've heard him, if you've been taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, the thing is inevitable. You cannot possibly continue like that because everything here points in the same direction. Now, if you want that as a general principle, you can put it like this, that obviously there is nothing which is more ridiculous apart from being wrong and erroneous and utterly unscriptural as to say that you can be justified without being sanctified, that you can receive one blessing without the other, that you just believe in Christ and are saved, and then later you go to certain meetings in order that you may learn about holiness and sanctification. It's patently wrong. If you know anything about him, it leads to holiness. You can know nothing about this gospel, but that it inevitably leads to holiness. That is why, personally, I've never been able to understand how you can have movements for evangelism, movements for holiness, movements about the second coming, movements for temperance, and all these various other things. It's an utterly wrong and false division of the scripture. 
It's a sheer manifestation of muddled thinking. Everything in the gospel leads to holiness. So that at no stage in the Christian life can we say, Oh yes, I haven't yet become interested in holiness. That follows later. As if you had these special departments with but a very loose connection between them. If you have so learned Christ, you cannot possibly, he says, continue to live as you were once living. Well now then, let's follow him as he works this out. He says the great thing is this knowledge of the truth, which is in Jesus. Now, we saw last Sunday morning that the first thing there is that it means a knowledge of the historic person of Jesus of Nazareth. That our faith must be based in him solidly. The historic Jesus. I emphasized how he refers to him as Christ in verse 20, Jesus in verse 21. We must have no vague philosophical ideas of salvation. No, no, they must all come out of Jesus, this person who belongs to history. You see, the old idea was perfectly right. Born of the Virgin Mary, crucified and died under Pontius Pilate. Hold on to the history. Once we lose the history, we've lost everything. That is why this modern tendency in theology on the continent of Europe is so dangerous, and it's coming into this country and has come, which says, ah, oh, the facts don't matter. You hold on to the message, the truth, this supposed new approach to the Bible, that you still hold on to your higher criticism and reject all miracles and all facts that don't fit in with modern science. But having done that, you still hold on to the theology and to the teaching and to the truth. That surely is of the devil, because it's all in Jesus, the historical person. Very well, we've seen that, but we must press on. Now, the truth that we also saw is in him alone. The gospel is exclusive. And any man who objects to the exclusive character of the gospel is again denying it. There is none other name under heaven given amongst men whereby we must be saved. He said himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. We are not interested in a world congress of faiths. Christianity needs no help. It needs no addition. It's all in him, and there's nothing anywhere else. It's exclusively in him, Jesus, this person who belongs to history. But now, having said that, we must go on to say this that we must be very certain at the same time that we accept the truth about him as it is. Not only is it true to say that the whole truth is in him, we must accept the whole truth as it is in him. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean the very thing that John in that first epistle keeps on referring to. Because in the very early days of the church, even before the end of this New Testament canon, there were false teachings about Jesus, about the Lord Jesus Christ. They'd already crept in, these antichrists he talks about. So you notice that John in that first epistle keeps on rarely elaborating on this theme, the truth 
as it is in Jesus, or as the truth is in Jesus. Now, the whole of that first epistle of John is really nothing but an exposition of this one phrase. It is the truth that is in Jesus. It's the opposite of everything false. John says these liars who are teaching in the name of Jesus but who are really denying the truth. Who is it, he says, that is born of God? And here's his answer. It is he who believes that Jesus is come in the flesh. Now why does he say that? Well, for this reason. These antichrists, these liars, these false teachers were saying, you see, that the Christ had not really come in the flesh. What they said was that he'd taken on a phantom body, that it wasn't a real body. They didn't believe in the incarnation. They didn't believe in the virgin birth. No, no, they said the eternal Christ took on him a kind of phantom body, which he used while he was here on earth, and he went out of it before Jesus was crucified on the cross. Now that is what is called a false dualism. It, it was that uh, first heresy that in a sense came in a sort of Gnosticism. It's got many terms. They were called Docetists also. It doesn't matter about the terms. The point is that these men, while professing to be Christians, were really denying it all by denying that Jesus had really come in the flesh. So you, as you read that first epistle of John, you'll find that he keeps on talking about the flesh and the water and the blood, the reality of this, as over against those false teachers. We must be certain, then, I say, that we are really believing the truth about the Lord Jesus Christ as it is expounded, and not this false teaching, this false mystical teaching. But accompanying that, there was another error and heresy which was equally dangerous. And that was, again, this uh, same false dualism, in a sense, it was the teaching which said that sin was confined only to the flesh, to the body. And that sin is only in our bodies and in our flesh. And therefore these people were saying that they themselves, as it were, had never sinned. The flesh sinned, but they didn't sin. They were drawing that false division. It led to sin and to antinomianism, obviously. Oh, they said it's all in the body. And what we need, therefore, is to get rid of the body. You get the same teaching, of course, still in Buddhism. That is its essential teaching. Salvation means getting out of the body, because sin is in the body. Well, now that had crept in. And so, you see, John says that if we say that we have no sin, we have denied the truth. He was undoubtedly referring to such people. They said they'd never sinned. They had never sinned. The body had, but they hadn't. And that kind of thing had crept into Christianity. And as you read the history of the church throughout the centuries, you will find it insinuating its horrible head so often. People say, oh yes, of course, I'm saved, but uh, uh, my body uh, still sins, but I'm not responsible for my body, and therefore... They say, it doesn't matter what I do in my body. That was the whole difficulty with antinomianism. It's the sin referred to in the book of Revelation as the sin of the Nicolaitans. 
You remember reading of it in the third chapter of Revelation. That was the kind of teaching. Well, now says John, no, no, that's, that's lie, that's an error, that's heresy. Turn your back on that. Paul puts it here in the same way. He says, the, the truth is in Jesus. And what is in Jesus is always truth. It isn't that sort of lie. So you can't say, now I've become a Christian, I've believed in Jesus Christ, and still go on living that old life which you were living before. They were doing that. And Paul says, this is abominable. You have not so learned Christ. Haven't you realized that Jesus is truth? And always truth? And always this truth about holiness. So if you're explaining a sinful life in terms of your belief, you're dividing yourself into a false dichotomy. And that is of the very devil. No, no. It is truth in Jesus. And it is never a lie. It's the very opposite of the lie. Well, now then, there is his uh, theological background, if you like, which enables us to come to ask the specific question, well then, what is this truth? You're familiar with it. Let me remind you of it. But let me remind you that what I'm doing is this. Everything about him at once leads to holiness. So that if an evangelistic service doesn't lead to holiness, it's wrong, it's failed. If there isn't a message for every Christian in an evangelistic service, it's bad evangelism. It isn't Christian evangelism. It isn't New Testament evangelism. Why? Well, because everything about him at once, I say, leads to this. Look at it like this. What is this truth that is in Jesus? Think of it as a revelation of God. No man hath seen God at any time, the only begotten which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. And he said, you remember, he who hath seen me hath seen the Father. But what did he teach about the Father? He has come to declare him, to lead him forth, to expound him. That's, he says he, he's himself, he has come to do that. He has come to bear witness to the truth, he says. And this is primarily the truth about God. What is the truth about God? Why, you know, it's a truth that we all learned, most of us at any rate, I'm sure, when we were little children. And we didn't understand what we were saying, but it was all there in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, which art in heaven, that's what you teach a child, isn't it? Not some benevolent daddy smiling indiscriminately. Our Father, which art in heaven, not even like an earthly father, but in heaven, the division at once, then hallowed be thy name. That's what you teach children. And yet people say, ah, oh, but this is an evangelistic service, this. Uh, the other does, looks after holiness. Uh, this isn't holiness now. There's nothing here for Christians, so the Christians needn't listen. They can be praying that others may be saved while the evangelism's going forward. You're familiar with the, with the teaching, aren't you? What a denial of scriptural truth. The very mention of the name God teaches holiness at once. Our Father, which art in heaven, 
hallowed be thy name. That's why joking and laughter in evangelistic services is a denial of the truth. For God is present. And where God is present, hallowed be thy name. Oh, how we deny the scripture in practice. What else? Well, you remember that he goes on to say, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's because it isn't done that evangelism is necessary. I mustn't stay with this, but listen to him himself praying to the Father. And this is what you hear. Holy Father. Holy Father. He was the only begotten Son. He'd come out of the eternal bosom, yet that is how he addresses him. Holy Father. Well, there is his revelation of God. What does he say about himself? What are we told about him? Well, you remember Mary was told at the very annunciation at the very beginning. This is what she was told. That holy thing which shall be born of thee. Those, that's the language. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. You see, the virgin birth pronounces it. He wasn't born out of natural wedlock. He wasn't born as everybody else has been born. No, no, Mary is told the Holy Ghost shall come upon thee and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. There was need of a cleansing process. He hadn't a sinful human nature. The human nature was cleansed for him. It was perfect. His very birth is holy, so that you can't mention his name without at once realizing that you're directed to holiness and to this new type of life. This holy thing that shall be born of thee. And then you follow his life. You see how separate it was, how unusual, so that he's able to say at the end, Who accuseth me of sin? Again, he says, the prince of this world cometh and findeth nothing in me. And nobody could find anything against him. As the author of the epistle to the Hebrews puts it, he was holy, harmless, undefiled, and separate from sinners. You can't preach Jesus Christ without preaching holiness. It's inconceivable. And if you attempt to do it, you're denying him. You can't separate the message from the person, in any sense. Are you some separate people are not interested in Jesus Christ, but they want peace or happiness or comfort or something. Well, if they're going to get it in him, they've got to face him. And he is holy, harmless, and undefiled, separate from sinners. You can't preach Jesus Christ without preaching holiness in any shape or form. And then take his teaching. What is his teaching? Well, there it is, Sermon on the Mount. That is his teaching. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are they that mourn. 
All this you come to Christ. Don't worry about repentance now. That will come afterwards. He starts with it. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Who realize how hopeless they are. How weak they are. Blessed are they that mourn. Who are conscious of their sinfulness. Blessed are they that do hunger and thirst after righteousness. Blessed are the pure in heart. For they shall see God. It's everywhere. Listen to him addressing the Pharisees and others. He says, you people who are so careful and punctilious about tithing mint and rue and anise and coming but are negligent about the greater and weightier things of the law. You people who polish the outside of the cup and the platter but whose inside is full of ravening and of wickedness. That's his teaching. This people, he says, honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And he's not interested in this superficial, glib religion which is on the lips only. He's interested in the heart. Ye are they, he says again to them, who are highly esteemed amongst men, but God seeth your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed amongst men is abomination in the sight of God. Oh, says many modern men, I'm not interested in these epistles. I'm a man for the Gospels. I'm a believer in the simple Gospel. Well, that's your Gospel. There are your simple Gospels. Packed from beginning to end with the importance of the heart and the purity and the cleanliness because God is God and God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. And then you see a poor woman in sin comes to him. And he's kind, yes he is, and he's compassionate. And he assures her of forgiveness. But you see, he doesn't stop there. He says, go and sin no more. He doesn't stop at saying, thy sins are forgiven. Go and sin no more. And to another he said, now then, I've done this for you. Go, he says, and beware, sin no more, lest the worst thing happen unto thee. And so it is ever, always. He didn't just come to give people a bit of happiness. And to assure them their sins were forgiven or to heal their sicknesses and diseases. He always emphasizes this other side. Thy faith hath saved thee. Go in peace. And that word saved means much more than physical healing. And then you remember his teaching about Dives and Lazarus. It's his teaching about the separation of the good and the evil and of heaven and of hell. But then look at his death. Why does he say that he must go to Jerusalem? Why did he set his face steadfastly to go there? He knew what was happening. He talks about that fox Herod. He knew of all about the plotting. He knew all about the machinations of his enemies. And yet he goes, he set his face steadfastly to go to Jerusalem. Why? Well, he tells us everywhere. He has come to give his life a ransom for many. His death is essential. And his death is essential because of the sinfulness of sin and the holiness of God. No other reason. That's why it's essential. 
So if you preach the death of Christ and say, I'm an evangelist, well, how can you without preaching holiness? The truth that is in Jesus all along is a condemnation of the life of sin. It shows the enormity of sin. That is why his death was absolutely essential. There is nothing in a sense that so preaches holiness as the cross on Calvary's hill. It is because God is holy, because God is just and righteous. That that had to happen. It would involve a contradiction in the being and the nature of God to have forgiven sin without punishing it. So you can't preach the cross without preaching the holiness, the righteousness, and the justice of God. It is the supreme manifestation of it. And what is the purpose and the object of his death? Well, the Apostle Paul, you remember in writing to Titus, in the second chapter puts it so plainly, who gave himself for us. Why? Well, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and separate unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. It's the whole message of the cross. And if we ever preach the cross without emphasizing that it was meant to make us holy, to make us good, he died that we might be forgiven, he died to make us good. They must never be separated. And then his resurrection preaches the same thing. He rose to justify us, to say that God and his holy law were satisfied He rose in order to present us to God. To present himself for us and then to present us. He seated at the right hand of God, what doing? Ever living to make intercession for us. The whole process is meant to this one end. And then you come to the final great doctrine in these acts of salvation, the sending of the Holy Spirit. What's the work of the Holy Spirit? Well, we needn't ask, need we? It is to sanctify us. It is to prepare us for the glory that is awaiting us. The whole object, every part and section of salvation is to deliver us from the life of sin, from sin and from Satan and evil, and to deliver us to God and to separate us. That's the meaning, to separate us, to take us from there and put us here. We are God's people and no longer people belonging to the world. That's the whole truth. And everywhere you see, it is about holiness. So it's not surprising that the apostle puts it like this, but you, you, he says, have not so learned Christ that you can go on there and say, I believe in Christ, and still go on as you were. If so be, assuming that you really have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. Does anybody still dispute it? I've simply picked out uh, some of the big and the obvious things in order to show how inevitable it is. But I'll put it as a challenge. I defy you to give me a single detail about the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. His coming, his living, his acting, his teaching, his dying, his rising again, his sending of the Spirit, anything which does not inevitably and as it were, automatically direct attention to holiness and to this life which belongs to the realm of God. 
There is nothing which is so sinful and which so denies the gospel as to bring in these divisions in any shape or form. But the most terrible of all the divisions is the division which we make when we separate what we believe from what we are and explain and excuse what we are doing by what we claim to believe. It's impossible. It can't be done. You have not so learned Christ. No man who has learned Christ can possibly do it. So if you're living like that, he says, the question is, have you heard him? Well, very well, that brings me to this next thing. Learning Christ, knowing the truth that is in Jesus, depends upon two things. And they're very simple and they're very practical, but they're very profound. The first is this, to hear him. If so be that you have heard him. What does he mean by that? Well, he obviously doesn't mean to say, if you Ephesians really did hear the Lord Jesus Christ preaching, because he knew perfectly well that they hadn't heard him. These had never been in Palestine. They'd never seen the Lord Jesus. They'd never heard his message as such from his own lips at all. And the apostle didn't expect them ever to have heard him. It doesn't mean that. These were pagans, Gentiles, far away from, from Jerusalem and from Palestine. So it doesn't mean that. It means this, that you've heard the message. They probably had not heard any of the apostles apart from Paul himself. So by learning Christ and hearing him, means hearing his message. You see, Paul says, I am an ambassador for Christ, so that as you hear me, you're hearing him. The ambassador speaks for the king, the head of the country, and so Paul is an ambassador. We beseech you in Christ's stead, be reconciled to God. So hearing the apostle is hearing Christ, it always means hearing the message. So let's get rid of that notion. Well, then what does this word hearing mean? And once more, the negatives are tremendously important. It's a very strong word, this. If so be that you have heard him. In other words, there's a difference between listening and hearing. The best way of expounding the meaning of this word hearing is to quote you something that our Lord himself said. You'll find it in the Gospel according to St. John in chapter 5 in verse 24. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Do you notice it? He that heareth my word. Now, these people he was preaching to had actually listened to him. He'd been preaching to them before. They'd heard him in Jerusalem. Yes, they'd listened, but they hadn't heard. He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me shall not come into condemnation. Hearing is a tremendous thing. Let me give you another illustration of the same point. You remember that wonderful lyrical story 
of the first convert that Paul had in Europe, Lydia, the cell of purple from the city of Thyatira. And do you remember that what we are told about her is this, whose heart the Lord opened, that she attended unto the things that were spoken of Paul. Attended unto. She not only listened, but she attended. Well, now then, let me work it out. What does this mean? It doesn't mean, therefore, just listening. You and I can listen to sermons without hearing Christ. God knows that's a very definite possibility, isn't it, in reality. There are people who can sit and listen to the gospel the whole of their lives and never hear it. It's the same distinction as the distinction between seeing and perceiving. You can look at a thing and see nothing of the thing itself. You can look at a marvelous landscape and just see trees and grass and animals and mountains and rivers and no more. Yes, says the poet, a yellow primrose was to him and it was nothing more. Just a primrose. Oh, well, plenty of primroses, walks along. A yellow primrose was to him and it was nothing more. Ah, but says the other man to me, the meanest flower that blows can give thoughts that do often lie too deep for tears. He looks at a little violet in the hedgerow and he sees the mighty creator and he worships him. But the other men, huh, just another, not just another flower, there are so many thousands of them. Or as a botanist he comes and dissects it, petals, stamens. Oh, to hear Christ doesn't just mean that you listen to sermons or listen to the gospel. Do you know it doesn't even mean enjoying them. You can enjoy preaching and still not hear Christ. If a man is a preacher worthy of his salt, you ought to enjoy his preaching. But there's a danger even there, you know, you can enjoy the preaching and not hear Christ. It doesn't even mean simply being aware of what is said. We can be aware of what is said in the gospel and still not hear Christ. It's possible for a man to take this up intellectually. There's nothing to stop him. And if he's got a real intellect, he can divide up the books of the scripture perfectly easily. He's got it all in lists. But he's never heard Christ. He can tell him, I'll tell you the contents of the epistle to the Ephesians. He can do it in five minutes. He's never heard Christ. An intellectual knowledge, an awareness is not enough. Indeed, I go further that even accepting the truth with the intellect alone is not hearing Christ. What is it then? Well, hearing Christ is that all that has taken place, but that beyond it, you believe it to be the truth. You understand what it says. You understand what it implies even. You're not taking it just on the surface in a detached manner. The scripture says, whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Do you believe? Yes, I believe. Very well. You're all right. You're through. Came through. That's not hearing Christ. Hearing Christ, I say, is understanding it itself and all its implications. What it all is directed and to what it all means. It means this anointing, this unction that the Holy Ghost gives, that gives us a spiritual apprehension. 
It isn't a glib and facile believism. It's something I say again that takes up the whole personality. In other words, we realize its significance and its significance to us. A man who hears Christ is a man who says, this is the most important thing in the world. This is everything. I know many other things and I'm not detracting from their value. But this, this is truth. This is the truth. He's heard Christ. He says, oh, I let everything go rather than this. I'll sacrifice everything as long as I can still have this. It's got him. It's gripped him. It's apprehended him. And he is apprehending it. It means, you see, that he surrenders itself to it. When a man has heard Christ, Christ and his gospel become the chief things in his life. He is mastered by them. He is governed and controlled by them. He surrenders himself to them. He lives to obey him and to obey the gospel. Indeed, I can say quite obviously from the whole context and from the whole of the New Testament that to hear Christ means that Christ controls and determines our lives. It cannot mean less than that. If I've really heard him, if so be that he have heard him. Oh, well, I know who he is, and I know why he's come, and I know that this is truth, the truth of God. Well, this must be first and supreme in my life. That's what is meant by hearing him, and that's the first condition, but let me say just a word about the second condition. If so be that ye have heard him, and have been taught by him, I read here in the authorized, but it should be, if so be that ye have heard him, and have been taught in him. Taught in him. Now that's a very important difference, isn't it? A very important change. It's a pity that the authorized is wrong at this point. And have been taught, says Paul, in him. What does it mean? Well, it doesn't just mean uh, taught in the doctrine concerning him, because he's already said that. This is an addition. This means this. That we have been taught in union with him. In other words, this teaching about which he's speaking is not a detached kind of teaching. Uh, to hear Christ and to be taught in Christ means that you're no longer an outsider, you are in Christ. That is why this kind of teaching is so different from every kind of teaching in the world. Men can lecture to you on history or on poetry or on science or anything else, and of course the whole time there is this detachment, not only as between the people who are listening and the one who is speaking, but between those who are listening and even believing what is taught and the truth itself. You're not in it. But here, you can't listen and remain outside. If you've heard Christ, you're in Christ. And so you're learning from the inside. This is a tremendous thing. Of course, uh, we've already been dealing with it. The apostle introduced this, you know, at the end of the first chapter. He prays for these uh, Ephesians that the eyes of their understanding may be enlightened. He prays that God, the, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, 
the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, what for? Well, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward that believe. Well, what about us? Where are we? Well, here it is. That believe in him according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named not only in this world but also in that which is to come, and hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. And you remember we've been there in the fourth chapter and what's he been telling us? Well, he's been telling us that we are in Christ, in the body. Do you remember these tremendous statements? From whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. And his prayer is that we all may grow up into him in all things which is the head. What's it mean? It means this. That we are being taught in Christ. The life of Christ is in us. It's not theory this. This is a life-giving teaching. It's a life-imparting teaching. And if I'm preaching in the Spirit as I pray, God, I am, well, then I'm not only uttering words to you, I'm imparting life to you. I'm being used of God as the channel of the Spirit, and my words bring life and not merely knowledge. Do you accept that distinction? You know, I'm almost afraid sometimes of those of you who take notes that you may just be getting the words and not the spirit. I'm not saying you shouldn't take notes, but I do warn you to be careful. Much more important than the words is the spirit, the life. In Christ we are being taught and built up in him, so that in a sense, though you may forget the words, you will have received the life, and you go out aware of the life of God, as it were, pulsating within you. You see, it's all the result of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit within us and these bands of supply you remember by which we saw that the nourishment comes from the head and to every part it doesn't matter how small it is well now then says the apostle if you really have uh, heard Christ and have been taught in him well you can't possibly go on living over there because I've taught you already he says that you're parts of the body of Christ you are members, as he'll say in the next chapter, of his flesh and of his bones. And his life comes percolating right through the bands of supply to you. And if that life is in you, how can you go on living like that? Ye have not so learned Christ. That's the argument. Shall I sum it up then as I close in this way? To hear Christ and to be taught in him means that I have learned that God has so loved me that at a given point in time he sent his only begotten Son into this world out of eternity into the virgin's womb. He humbled himself 
and was born as a helpless babe and put in that manger. And then he lived and he taught. He rendered a perfect obedience to his Father and his most holy law. And then, though he may have commanded twelve legions of angels and have returned to heaven without any difficulty at all, he deliberately went to the cross and suffered the shame and the spitting and the indignity of it all. Why? To bear my sins, to receive my punishment, to suffer the penalty that my guilt had deserved. Oh, but infinitely more important, to deliver me from the bondage of sin and of Satan, to separate me unto himself, and to make of me a man zealous of good works, delighting in holiness. He went, he returned to heaven, and he sent out the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Why did he do this? Well, that I might have the assurance of it all, and the joy and the power. He has given me a new life and a new nature. He has joined me unto himself. I'm a member of his mystical body. I'm a child of God. I'm an heir of heaven. That's what knowing Christ means. Learning him, hearing him, being taught in him. I believe the teaching that naught that defileth shall be allowed to enter into heaven. That heaven is eternally pure and holy. The antithesis of this world in sin the opposite of hell. That's how I've learned Christ. That's how I've heard him. That's how I've been taught in him. That I am, he, that I am in him, the living head, and a part of him. And that beyond this life and death and the veil, I'm going to be with him forever and forever. Well, if you believe that, says Paul, if you believe that, says John, there is only one inevitable deduction. Ye have not so learned Christ, or in John's words, he that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. The logic is inevitable. Everything about him makes that old life unthinkable as well as impossible. Amen. We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust audio library are now available for free download. You may share the sermons or broadcast them. However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party. And second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust.org.